Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman. I'm here with my friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. We also have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. And Erica, intern Erica, is not on the dials uh, this evening. She couldn't join us, uh, but we're going to press forward, fellas. Uh, yeah, we got, I mean, how you guys been? Uh, we're not going to jump right into topics. I guess it's like, let's catch up. How you guys been? You know, we haven't talked in a, a week, I guess. Other than text, we'll text about topics. We'll text about, you know, certain things. There's a big Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance airing tonight uh, in the States and at 3 a.m. on Netflix in Canada. Uh, we've talked about that. We're not watching that. We're actually recording a podcast. How you guys been? Doing pretty good. I'm actually very excited about this Jordan doc. Um, yeah, most of the games that they've been playing, uh, like replaying, I just am not that interested. Even the Raptor stuff, like I thought it was maybe like a little too like emotionally tolling to go through, even though I knew the outcome of like what the Raptors were going to do. But I haven't watched any of those retro games. But the Jordan stuff, I feel like I really want to. They've been posting a bunch of stuff on like Instagram on the NBA feed, and it looks really good. And um, I had this memory of, uh, because they were showing the 96 finals, some highlights from that where the Bulls were playing the Supersonics. And I forgot how much I l- was obsessed with Gary Payton. Has this ever happened to you where there's something from your memory that you have not thought about literally in like decades, and then it comes back in your mind or you see a picture of it or you see a video and you go and your body is filled with this like nostalgia and these like swelling feelings that bring you right back uh, to that time. I just remember being obsessed with Gary Payton in like 1996. I would have been 10 years old and I was obsessed with his shoe. I can still remember what his shoe looks like. Oh yeah, it had the, it, did it have the three, uh, like that really shiny piece on it? It was a black shoe and it had a, uh, like a triangle, but like three bubbles at the corners of the triangle. The one I'm thinking of had a zipper over top of it and it was like a glove. Is, you don't know what I'm talking about? I know that and one. I, yep. and anyway, it, it's yeah, just I funny because I, you know, I still follow basketball very closely, but I just haven't thought about Gary Payton in, I don't know, a very long time. He retired probably in 2006 or something like that. And I, but now I'm just like, oh my God, the, the intense, intense feelings. I had for Gary Payton. Um, it's just something I hadn't thought about in a long time, but like it all just came flooding back uh, watching watching those clips. So I am very excited to see the Michael Jordan doc. That uh, phenomenon that you're talking about uh, the um, the idea of seeing something that you forgotten that you even cared about or knew about or remembered. Uh, we, my brother and I actually have a name for that. Uh, my my our opa our grandpa had this like huge dog when we were kids. It was this beautiful dog named Boomer. And we like loved that dog when we were little kids. And for some reason, over the years, I think the dog passed away when we were probably like, I was probably like nine or eight or something like that. And then I hadn't thought about the dog. And then years later, I saw a picture or my Oma brought the dog up and I was like, holy shit. I was like, that dog meant everything to me when I was a kid. And I completely forgot that that dog even existed. (laughs) So then my brother and I now like in talking about that phenomenon, whether it's like someone you went to school with or, you know, being, you know, loving Gary Payton as a player or something that you've sort of, it's still there in your brain uh just waiting to be rediscovered and then you get flooded with these feelings uh but for some reason you would never think about it unless someone brought up we call that like boomering it so if i'm like oh greg do you remember uh, you know i don't name some kid from middle school greg would be like oh man i totally boomered that guy <laughs> and so that's kind of like this saying that we have you boomered gary <laughs> payton boomer so it's interesting to hear you say that anyway i feel like okay boomer has taken over though boomer <laughs> it's ruined it it's ruined yeah. the word yeah yeah it's ruined it. it just happened to me i was in the bathtub and I was going over the pod topics, and you had uh, extended the pod. Instead of meeting at 8, we met at 8.30, so I had an extra half an hour. And I was trying to think of an album that I really liked, and I couldn't think of it. Mm. And then all of a sudden, 
I just thought of Jagged Little Pill. Huh. And I forgot. <laughs> Great one. I forgot how obsessed and like I would listen to it nonstop. Like I got it on Easter, like the Easter Bunny gave it to me. Uh, I think it was in grade seven. <laughs> and, and I, it was the only thing I listened to for an entire year of my life. Every song is a classic on that album, in my opinion. And so I just, I listened to it again for the last half an hour. And it just made me feel great. Uh, my boss, Randall, was saying that he was watching this Britney Spears music video and somehow it had a, a quality to it that made him feel like everything's going to be okay again mm. one day. And I, I, I don't know why, but like the, a video from the early 2000s just made him feel like the future is going to be okay. And it, it, the Jagged Little Pill album kind of did that to me. You know, for me, though, it doesn't necessarily make me feel okay. It actually kind of brings back in some sort of anxieties and just like the chaotic feelings you have as a 10-year-old or just as some any age in your youth that you have, it brings me, and I just go, oh, my life feels a little bit more peaceful now because when I think about Gary Payton, I think about being nervous before a basketball game that I was going to play or nervous about things that were going on at school. I, like it, it, you know what I mean? How that, like you listen to a piece of music and do yeah. that too, where you're like, oh, this is a song from my girlfriend in grade 11 or something like that. And that, that gives me that, that anxiety that was associated with that time. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird how, yeah, it can conjure up not just feelings of good stuff, but also, yeah, it brings you right back. Yeah, for me, it's like things were okay then, they'll be okay again type of vibe. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I think we'll all be tuning into that uh, when it does air. I mean, it's cool because just reading about it, what's so fascinating about this this documentary, which I guess the what's cool about it is that for 20 years, they've been sitting on this footage from the 98 finals or that season, the last season that Jordan played before he retired. He ultimately came back with the Wizards, but he allowed a documentary crew to just follow the team or him and the team. And I read this cool piece talking about how it got made. And essentially, Adam Silver, who was like the head of NBA entertainment, do you guys know any of this stuff yet? Oh, I think you might have told me, but yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm just so fascinated in process. And, and it's like, I guess what happened was, um, I believe it was like, uh, so Michael Thompson, who played for the uh, uh, the Lakers, his son is Clay Thompson. You guys might know him from the Warriors. Uh, his brother was like a documentary guy. And so he basically said, nobody's ever followed somebody around like in their their prime, like someone like Muhammad Ali in their sort of last season, this might be a great opportunity for NBA entertainment to sort of like embed a crew shooting film with this, this, uh, this historic team. Um, so Adam Silver, who's now the commissioner of the NBA, I guess was the head of like NBA entertainment at the time. He had to go basically to Phil and get like, he was like, do you mind if we follow your team around? I guess Phil was like, I understand, like, I respect that you guys are trying to capture history. He sort of understood the need to do it or why it might be beneficial. Um, he said, but you just have to allow me to kick you out of things. You know, I, I have to have the, the, the ability to say, get out if you're in the locker room and it's an intense moment or something like that. They said, of course. He goes, but ultimately, like, you're going to have to figure it out with Michael. Michael's the guy that's going to have to say yes or no to this doc. And so I guess Adam Silver has a conversation with Michael Jordan and he says, we want to follow you around. And Jordan's like, eh, I'm not really feeling that. And Adam said, okay, here's the deal. We'll shoot this footage, but we can never, it can never see the light of day and no one can ever see it unless you also agree uh, to let it go out into the public. Jordan goes, uh, Adam Silver said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, at the very worst, he goes, you're just going to have an awesome bunch of home movies for your kids that will show this last season and no one else will ever see it. And I guess Jordan goes, okay, cool, fine, as long as I can have this. I guess for the last 20 years, 
This has kind of been like secret footage that has gone around. People have seen like a weird sort of like hour long cut of some of the more interesting moments. Uh, and Jordan wouldn't even take like meetings basically about this thing. And sort of people are saying that. So these meetings started where Jordan finally took it right after LeBron came back 3-1 against the Warriors. And everyone started saying that LeBron was like <laughs> the debate started in kind. And so everybody said. So the guy, the producer that did it said that um, he got he sat down with Michael the day that the uh, the Cavs were doing their parade da- in downtown Cleveland to celebrate <laughs> LeBron bringing a championship to Cleveland. Is that true? Um, and wow. yeah, yeah. And apparently they had the list of docs that this guy had produced. And I guess he gets to the end and uh, Jordan's looking at them. And uh, he says, oh, he's like, you guys did the Allen Iverson doc. And um, apparently the producer was kind of hesitant to say yes or no because he was like, is this a bad thing or a good thing? I don't know. So he goes, yeah. And then Jordan goes, I watched that three times. Made me cry. I love that little guy. He goes, let's do it. And then he was willing to work with this producer, the guy, the director. And it's been, I can't, so when did the Cavs win that? 2016? Yeah. So this this has been like th- four, three years in the making, sort of. That's like, that's him agreeing to do it. Then you hire the director. Then you go get all the interviews and all that stuff. But anyway, so I'm really, really excited to uh, to see this thing. Eight, eight parts. It'll be very, very I thought it was 10 parts. I think it's eight, but you you could be right. Uh, don't quote me on eight or on ten, but I think I think it's okay. eight, but you could be right. I think um, what's interesting too is apparently one of the reasons that it wasn't going to work in the last twenty years is because the way that people consume documentaries, and this gets back to Tiger King or uh, how to how to making a murderer or whatever that doc is uh, made in America with OJ. It's like people consume docs way differently now uh, because of those long form sort of like 10 part documentaries. That was the best way to tell this sort of story with the nuance and everything that you need, as opposed to like a 90 minute feature that would just play in a theater that probably would have been how they made it in like 2005 or, you know, whatever, 2010, something like that. So anyway, we'll see if people are watching it. Obviously, we're all huge basketball fans, but uh it yeah. would be funny if it was just a huge piece of shit after all this time. Like if there's <laughs> like Benny Hill music playing and like <laughs> montages. Um, hey, I'm usually uh, not man. that into the idea of like these Netflix hangouts, but this is one that I would actually ask the Champagne Boys to do a Netflix hangout so we could all Wait, watch it together. does that mean together. we all watch at the same time? And there's a message board and we can all talk at it. Arkells did it with Indy oh. 88 and we watched Basketball, actually. This was like two weeks ago. And, and anybody can, and you basically just like sign up for it and anybody can enter it. Because I would like to watch it with you guys. That might be kind of fun. Would, yeah. you, guys, would you guys be into that? That's a cool idea. That's a really cool but idea. But we have to watch it immediately because I can't yeah. wait more than two days. Okay, fair enough. Okay, we'll see if we can get, get that on the board soon. Like maybe maybe tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah. tomorrow night could be could work. Like tomorrow night at like you know nine p.m. or something. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the kids go to sleep, Ooh, you know. I like that for Shane and I. You're a little bit easier, Max. You're more fluid. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, actually, on that note, a, a couple a uh, couple thoughts on the Jordan doc. One, I, it's so interesting that Adam Silver was the guy back in whatever 1996 to orchestrate the whole thing, and it kind of speaks to just his foresight as a thinker and also his ability to gain trust from people because that's been his sort of greatest accolade as a commissioner is this getting people to buy in, kind of doing the right thing and also being trustworthy. I mean, no one thinks of Roger Goodell as a trustworthy guy. Would you would you trust him if he was making a deal with you? If you're a star athlete in the NFL? Probably not. But the fact that Adam Silver has built up this goodwill amongst everybody in the league I think is really impressive and he's clearly been doing it for a long time. The other thing I think about sometimes when, when you hear this um, Clay Thompson story with Clay Thompson's dad, his brother, and just how connected the league is. You know, it's funny because like I think of myself as like a somewhat connected person. Like you know, I can 
text Nick Nurse or Kyle Dubas, and I know a bunch of musicians, and but it's just like the the level of connection and sort of like circles that Steph Curry has been running in since he was a child. Is it's just mind blowing, you know? What I mean, it's just like not only was his dad a player who who played with Vince Carter, let alone every other star in the league. You know, he goes on to have his own career. He knows Barack Obama. Like, how many guys? Anyway, I just find that like when someone like Steph Curry or Adam Silver is seemingly really like that well adjusted <laughs> and just down to earth, despite having rolled in royalty for decades, I just find that to be. Very impressive and makes me like someone like Steph Curry or Clay Thompson for that much more. Because Clay Thompson's been rolling in NBA royalty since he was a kid as well, because his dad was on the Showtime Lakers. Even when someone grows up like sort of like with money, you know, like kind of like a significant amount of money and they live a certain lifestyle, it's always impressive when they sort of embody their own work ethic and their own sort of like drive and need to sort of succeed because it should be so much easier to sort of live a more leisurely life or just sort of coast from thing to thing and sort of indulging in the pleasures of life because you have this sort of monetary safety net from your parents. Maybe it all depends on how you're brought up, but I'm always sort of impressed when because it's like you know, the amount of work it takes to work on your game to sort of play at the level that a Clay or a Steph plays at, it's like that. that is so inherent when it would be easy and probably like 99% of other people would just be like, I'm just going to hang out on the boat and drink beers. Do you well, know it's like the mean? Tom Hanks' kids. It's it's like one seems to be like a really hardworking actor and the other is like this wannabe rapper. Not, I shouldn't be, you know, disparaging his name. I don't know if he's, <laughs> maybe he's a great rapper. But but like the rapper guy with the tattoos who like went on Instagram immediately yeah, yeah, as soon as his dad and mom... Uh, had COVID, I was like, oh, this seems like the kid who's born into privilege and has no self-awareness whatsoever. So when, so, and that's almost the more predictable. Well, did you see it? The, did you see it? The, the Golden Globes? No. What was that? At, at the Golden Globes when, when Tom Hanks got like his lifetime achievement award, Tom goes up and then they keep cutting to the family and you've, they've got the whole spectrum. Like Tom, you know, he's got all his kids at the table and Chet's there and he's kind of like the, you know, everyone knows he had the rap thing, but you know, Tom's up there and he's like, uh, he's tearing up and he's like, I love my family. I love my kids. I love what, you know, I couldn't do without the family. I couldn't do without, you know, his wife. And they cut to the, the table and it's like, it's really Tom's moment and the whole table's sitting there. But then Chet Hayes, Chet Hayes, the, 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 the son you're talking about goes, we love you, Dad. <laughs> like, just in such like a, but it was like right there in the goal goes like he just yelled it back out of the stage, which was just so funny, and I was just like, ah, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It's a good moment. Good moment from good moment from uh, Chet Hayes. Yeah. Uh, Shane, um, speaking of roommates, you you said uh, okay, you had a bath earlier, which is kind of yeah. interesting to me. Do you normally have baths? No, I was okay. So Erica's not here, obviously, and yeah. she she wasn't feeling well, and then I started getting a chill. And I'm like, something's wrong. I'm not feeling well. I was drinking a lot of water today because, you know, people don't drink enough water. I'm Tom on this Brady new... told us that last week. Exactly. We I'm on this new yeah. dieting app <laughs> called Noom. And it, it always tells me to drink water. But a byproduct of that is I tend to run a little bit colder now. So mm. I got a hot tea and a bath so I could feel comfortable for this podcast. But then I realized um, my wife, Alex, had shut the air off, the heat. So our house was like 10 degrees colder than it normally was. So it wasn't just me freaking out or being sick. It was literally the temperature in the house was different. So now I'm feeling a lot better. But yeah, that's why I was having a bath. Whoa, did you think it was COVID related or something? No, I thought I was having a panic attack. I had a panic attack yesterday. So yeah. what's the deal? The reason I had a panic attack was Alex and I stayed up to like three in the morning chatting and my daughter woke up at 530. So I had only two hours sleep and then I over caffeinated myself. And I started kind of freaking out. I started feeling very surreal. 
and I had to snuggle up with my wife for an hour just while she rubbed my back because I'm incapable of napping. So instead of sleeping it off, I just had to like zen out while she rubbed my back. It was pretty weird. Oh, wow. What were you guys talking about until three in the morning? What do you possibly have to talk about? You, you've you been quarantined for like five weeks. Like, how is this possible? I don't know. This is crazy. That's, the, that's the craziest part of this whole story, to be honest. I'm not actually Old, even uh, interested in the panic attack. I'm more just interested in like yeah. how you and your wife are actually no, having it's a, a great talk question. conversation until 3 a.m. That blows my mind. No, it's a great question. The answer is old Seinfeld episodes, but uh, no, I'm I'm kidding. It was, we had a bill that we hadn't been paying for years, literally over three years. And every time this bill comes, I always ask Alex about it. I'm like, what what is up with this bill? And Alex tells me, oh, don't worry. It's being taken care of. I'm like, okay. So we get the bill and it's like, you know, almost $2,000. And I'm like, Alex, this, like, this isn't getting taken care of. They're not going to keep sending us a bill turns out we do have to pay this and we've incurred three years of interest charges Mm. so it was so it was like it started out maybe at like two hundred dollars and now it's up to two thousand dollars over three years but i was just i wasn't mad about the money but i was just telling her that we we got into a big conversation just about when when we get a little problem let's not let it get to such an insurmountable problem and, you know, it was just we started talking about everything. But that was kind of the impetus of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, it was 3 a.m. And then my daughter happened to wake up at 5.30 a.m. It was just this terrible cycle of events that kind of the next day I was a little bit more stressed out than I would have been otherwise. I don't think it was COVID related, but maybe that that was underlying, too. I've told you this, guys. I've become so soft and so coddled that I can't even bear to look at so a bill that, com- that comes... Oh, sorry, I'll start again. Yeah, Maxi, you keep dying on us. Yeah, do you have so a, like a better again. spot in your house? Maybe sometimes I find if people like relocate a little closer to the modem. I'm like ten feet from the modem right now. It's like, I can, can you s- go on top of the modem? <laughs> can I straddle the modem? <laughs> <laughs> Stick it in your asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep all that in. By the way, I become so coddled and so soft that I can't even look at a bill. As soon as it comes to my house, I put it like right in this like little satchel and I bring it right to my accountant's office and then he just takes care of it all. Like the, I, I cannot bear to look at any money basically. Uh, even in these COVID times, you just drop off that bill? Uh, no, no, it's been about five weeks, but most of my bills have been redirected to the accountant's place. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't get really much mail at all. It's, it's, it's a good way to live. But I do wonder when things go south, when I have to start doing my account, my own accounting, it's going to be like very hard on my psyche. But but the way I, the way I justify this though is that I'm an idea guy and I need to be working with a clear mind and be in a good mood for my ideas mm-hmm. to materialize. If I'm stressed out about like you know regular adult stuff, there's no ideas going to come because I'll be worried yeah. about paying the bills, right? So I don't know how you guys get any work done because I yeah it's it it would be a real problem for me if I had real responsibilities. Yeah, it is true. I I have a lot of uh, trouble with other things weighing on my mind when I'm trying to be creative. I cannot get anything done unless I've done X, Y, and Z first. So it's like I have to, I can't start thinking of a a commercial unless I've paid all my bills or done this little task or gone to the gym, you know? And sometimes when you hear about like some like um, prolific, uh, incredible like writer, and you hear stories about their partner going, oh, we don't like to disturb him. He needs to be in a good place to work. You know, I, I get jealous of that. I, I wish everybody, I mean, I kind of have that already, but like 
people to treat <laughs> people to treat me like that. She's like, don't dis- don't disturb him. He's creating works of genius right now. So uh, that, that's what that's what we're all striving for. I think. <laughs> yeah, you're you're there, so I'm jealous of you. Yeah, what's what's it like? It's like, do you ever think, oh man, what's going to happen if it if it all ends for me? You know, if I'm not this band guy and I have this charmed existence, like, are you terrified about that proposition? Oh yeah, yeah, it's going to be a, like a steep like a uh, learning curve that I will not be ready for whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys watch the, uh, I mean, I know we got pod topics, but did you guys watch uh, the, uh, the, the concert last night, the big one world thing for the, uh, anybody got any thoughts? I, I know it's not on our topics, but Shane had mentioned, he brought it up. He was like, are people watching this? So I thought I'd throw it out there before we got to the actual. Well, topics. I was just wondering if it was a big deal. Cause I, for how many celebrities were involved, it didn't seem like anybody was really talking about it. I watched Elton John in his driveway. Apparently he has a basketball net in his driveway. And then he, <laughs> he was singing, I'm still standing, but he, <laughs> he didn't seem drunk, but he seemed like he was, he was doing it weird. It was like, I'm still standing. Like it was really, it was really weird. Did you guys see, catch that? At yeah, all? we watched it. Um, yeah, it was a weird performance for sure. And it was a couple of things that were weird about the Elton performances. One, yeah, he was in his driveway, but he, the basketball, the kind of the crummy Canadian tire three hundred dollar basketball net was there, like in the shot directly behind him. Like if you had a sweet basketball net, sure, keep it in there. And if it was like unmovable, keep it in there. But if this is like a thing you could just like wheel out of the shot, like why wouldn't you just do that? You've you've clearly wheeled a grand piano into your driveway. Like get that thing out of the way. You have this like well, beautiful- all I could think about was the ball placement, the two balls placed there, and how his <laughs> assistants are like, oh, this will make you really relatable to like the common man, and like yes, the <laughs> shitty the shitty net is perfect. Like it was so <laughs> contrived. I thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, sure it was contrived, but it was just still a weird move. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was interesting to see like each um, celebrity's production value because you could tell the ones that kind of get it and the ones that like kind of didn't give a shit. And there are some instances where it's like, for instance, I'm a huge Casey Musgraves fan. I think she's like one of the best singer songwriters of this era. She's like the perfect yet kind of younger performer to be on this show that has a very wide audience. And it's funny, I relate to her, though, because she performed this song, the, the lap, sorry, it's not even a laptop, it's probably her iPhone that's filming it, is on top of the piano. And as she's playing her the piano part, the piano is so much louder in the mix than her vocal because it's sitting on top of the piano. I know this because we've been doing this Instagram Lives every day, and anytime I do anything with the piano, all I see in the comments is, we can't hear your voice. We can't hear your voice. And it was the same thing with Casey Musgraves. And so I'm like, okay, sure enough. You know, sure, Casey, you, you send the thing to the producers. You think you're done. But you think somebody on the production team or her manager would be like, hey, Casey, uh, what you sent was great, but can you do it again? Because you, the, the piano is three times as loud as it should be, and we really can't hear your voice right now. But there's a lot of those little moments here at the show where you're wondering, like, who, like do, do, the, do their management... Are these celebrities management teams so afraid of these artists of these artists that they just don't want to tell them no? Or are the producers just so like last minute about everything that they have no time to film something again? I was thinking like, you know, I think we touched on this last week, but it's like if if this is a thing that's going out to an international audience and there's gonna be millions of eyeballs on it, you think they'd try to do something uh 
that was a little more impressive on a production level. And you said it yourself, Mike. I've been thinking about that. You're like John Krasinski in his Some Good News segment is so good because Krasinski is a director and he thinks about every element of the show. And it also got me thinking about YouTubers and how much we've taken them for granted um, because, honestly, YouTubers really know how to pull off a really captivating three-minute thing that is funny and edited well with literally, like, two cameras. Like, I wish the whole show was just YouTubers producing the thing because the old guard kind of fucked it up, I think, to a degree. It's funny that you mentioned the lighting um, because I thought amongst the hosts, like with Fallon, uh, Colbert, and um, Kimmel, Kimmel's lighting and camera was so much better than the other two. Like, he actually just looked... Like a, it, it looked good, whereas like uh, Colbert and Jimmy Fallon were just so much sort of like uh, it just looked a lot more DIY, uh, and it was very interesting. So I was like, I wonder if if like uh, Kimmel has like he had a crew come in and figure out how to light and just stayed social distancing. Well, Kimmel's wife is a head writer for mm. his show. I think mm. I think that's where they met. So there's some showbiz in that household for sure. Yeah. Mm. What did you think of McCartney going vertical instead of horizontal? Oh, did he dunk on uh, the Elton John set? No, I mean, the, McCartney was like, you know, <laughs> we're the biggest Beatles fans ever. I love McCartney. But even his performance, it was this kind of weird version of Lady Madonna. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, well, th- yeah. I mean, the, the, him going vertical was so that they could put the clips of the uh, the National Health Service people in, in the, uh, like, the black parts of going. You know, he used the, the iPhone was upright. So then, like, in a widescreen thing, you could put the clips. So, it, like, thought was put into that. But the Lady Madonna performance, which was like this slowed down, like jazzy version, and it was kind of supposed to like, you know, like the whole song Lady Madonna is about how much, you know, like that that character works hard and has the baby at her feet and they can't make ends meet, but she sort of presses through and, you know, it's sort of like an homage to women. Um, So I get why he played Lady Madonna, which is normally a very upbeat song. Yeah, I don't know, man. McCartney's. It was a choice. I'm, I'm not going to kill McCartney on this uh, on this podcast right now, but uh, you know, it was fine. Is his legacy tarnished? <laughs> <laughs> Part of the Beatle records, yeah. What'd you guys think of uh, Sean Mendez and uh, Camille Cabello? I like the performance good. actually, yeah. and he can play piano pretty good too. I was his hair impressed. looked awesome. Yeah, mm. it was lit well too. It was like there was a few different edit points. They sing really well together. I thought the song choice at first, I was like, eh, interesting. And then I was like, no, oh, actually, you know what? It's uh, I thought it was a, a nice choice. What a wonderful world. Who do you think's a bigger prize in that relationship? I think Sean is. Yeah, I get that feeling too. But I bet you Sean's more in love. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the bigger prize would have to be more in love. The lower prize. Right. Uh, no. what, <laughs> what do you think, Mike? You're, uh, who's the bigger prize? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd say Mendez. I'd say Mendez. But I mean, but the thing is, like when they started, she was more famous than him. You could make the argument about. And I think he's mm-hmm. now eclipsed her. Right. Uh, it's like when you fall in love with someone from high school who is very popular and you don't realize you yourself have become <laughs> like coming to yourself. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's that dynamic. Yeah, forever that dynamic will live on for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, what else happened? Oh, I also just think. um I think we're actually in a pretty good era for late night hosts. I was thinking about this the other day because I think they all occupy a slightly different lane. I know purists or whatever will be like, Johnny Carson's the guy or like there's nothing compared to like Letterman and Leno or whatever. But um, I think... How old are these purists? (laughs) Nobody's saying Leno, by the way. Johnny (laughs) Carson. 
<laughs> Johnny oh, was a gem. Like I think people growing up that watched Johnny Carson would say Johnny Carson was like the guy and nobody touches him. Like in the same way people who like were fans of the Celtics in the sixties would be like Bill Russell's the greatest of all time or whatever. Right. But um Of course. Colbert is amazing and has his own sort of political lane. Kimmel's a little bit more like every man, but like sneaky smart. Colbert is the more like intellectual. Oh, sorry, I said Colbert already. Um, Fallon is the more like jokey kind of like bit. There's this musical angle to it. Conan, I think you can make an argument that Conan's better than all of them, but he's not even on a network. Corden is like the endearing Brit, but I kind of like them all, like for different reasons. Like I think we're actually in a pretty- Where is Conan right now? Conan's a TBS. He's been a TBS for like ten years or whatever. <laughs> That's the joke. Is oh, is that not considered a network? Well, it's not. It's not one of the three. And like they're they're like um they're like cable. Like it's if you just look at the numbers of how many people watch Conan's are just people just don't watch TBS, especially for late night shows you know it's like it's so minuscule compared i think to the other ones I, again like that's I, I i'm pretty sure that i read a piece about this like a year ago how far he'd sort of fallen just viewership but again he's doing podcasts now and he sort of i think his online presence still gets a lot of views but it's just such a huge jump from like nbc or cbs um or abc which is the three major sort of networks that those guys are on colbert kimmel and fallon that uh i think you know that's why Everybody, sort of the post-Conan thing was like, eh, just stay, like go back to midnight, let Leno do his thing, and then let Leno leave, and at least you stay on NBC. Instead, he kind of took his ball and went over to TBS, which I get, I totally get, but I think it's like, you know, maybe in the future, sort of like big networks won't be as sort of like important, but it seems like they still are and have been for the last five years or whenever the hell that thing happened. Maybe it's a decade ago now. I don't even remember. Guys, rank the hosts uh, for, for, in your opinion, like one to four, or I guess... One to five, if you're including Conan. Just personal favorites. Where would you put him? Uh, for me, Conan, just because he's such a nostalgia act for me. Like, I grew up watching him. I would watch him his show every single night of my life. And I don't watch those shows anymore. So I'm going to say Conan for that reason. But who would you put two, three, four, five? I'd go, uh, I'd, go, uh, I'd go Conan one. I think Kimmel is super talented. So I'd put him two. I'd put Colbert three. I'd put Fallon four. Uh, but I really like what all of them do. Like you said, like I think Jimmy Fallon absolutely sort of like has a thing that really is appealing to people and it's not too heavy. And I know some people knock him for that. Like he doesn't do real interviews and it's all fluff and all that stuff. But I'm like, that's kind of what people want sometimes. They just want to be entertained and have a good time. Um, that would be my four. And then you can put Corden at five if you want. I enjoy him as well. Yeah, I don't think there's any bad, uh, bad, bad, bad hosts. But I will say there's still not um, a, 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 a woman host sort of in late night TV. Chelsea Handler was doing it for a bit. Lily Singh's doing like, she got the old Carson Daly spot, which is at like one thirty in the morning or something crazy. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that there's no one in the sort of the rotation there. But uh, yeah, that would be my five. What would your five be, uh, Maxie? I think I agree with your order. Exactly. Like, like I, you know, it's funny though. I will say that back, I don't know, whatever, 10 years ago with the Colbert report, I would have put Colbert as like, oh, he'll be my favorite. Cause I think, Colbert means the most to me because I watch him a lot through like university, like in the way that Shane would have watched Conan. But now I think it's Conan number one. I, I Kimmel has just like keeps proving himself um, as a guy who's like wickedly funny. I know he's like a Letterman disciple, um, and but he also has got a big heart. I think like tonally he's able to speak to things in a really funny way. It's like. He, like, what did he say about when he was introducing Paul McCartney last night? He's like, well, you know, this is serious if a Beatles getting involved, like just like acknowledging. <laughs> or did you see like after a JLo did her big, uh, I think she did a Barbra Streisand song or whatever. And uh, at the end, 
you know, JLo finishes and she goes, uh, she goes, I miss you. And then it cuts to uh, Kimmel, who's ready to do the next throw. And he goes, I miss you too, JLo. And then it like, he goes on with his bit, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he, you're right. Like, I think the thing about Kimmel, that is so good. Like, I mean, and he, he was like, um, he really did the Kobe Bryant Memorial. He's kind of got this ability, unlike the other ones, uh, maybe Kobe could probably pull it off to like oscillate between very sort of like, um, heartfelt and emotional that feels sincere. Like he, he does care. And then he could also like snap off a joke where it's like, you can't really see Fallon doing like the, the heavy stuff. Um, Colbert could probably do it. Conan is, it'd be very weird to see Conan be very serious all of a sudden in, in, in a situation where it's like, it can't all be joking. Kimmel has that really good ability to sort of toggle back and forth, which is like a hard, hard thing to do. I feel like Conan does have that ability though. You think so? Oh yeah. Like how he handled nine 11 and stuff like that. I feel like he's good at that, but yeah, he could be, I just in an extended thing, like him, like hosting a memorial for Kobe or like doing like, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately last night's marathon was, there was a lot of joking by the three hosts and all that stuff, but also it was very heavy and, you know, it was very, it was interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm, you're, I'm probably underselling Conan a bit, but we've seen Kimmel do it a lot. Yeah, I agree. Um, Kimmel is also like Mr. LA, even though Conan's lived in LA for a long time, I don't associate Conan with LA. Cause I think, was this show in New York when he was, when he was on NBC? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, Kimmel feels like the guy who, like, when, you know, a team wins a championship, they go they go on Kimmel. Well, I guess the Lakers specifically, uh, or any of the showbiz stuff, Kimmel feels very connected to. He's also spoken out about gun violence in a really thoughtful way. Um, but I was thinking about Conan. Conan kind of reminds me of, this is, like, an example to, in my life, um, of, like, an artist like Joel Plaskett, where Plaskett maybe, like, doesn't sell as many tickets as Arkells does or other sort of more contemporary bands, but all the contemporary bands look up to Conan. Cause I think like Kimmel, Colbert, all those guys go, Oh, like Conan, like that guy is working on like a slightly different level. And that's the way I feel about Plaskett, for instance, like Plaskett's like maybe not as popular as Arkell's, but we all know that like Plaskett's the goat. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I feel like Conan has that reverence about him in that community. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah. That's a good comp. Um, well, man, this was a long way around to uh, get into some topics, dudes. Dude, that's your your way of saying you guys weren't that interested in the topics, but that's okay. Well, it was just 45 <laughs> minutes of technical issues and uh, five minutes of content. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Do you want, Maxi Boy, do you, are you feeling this New York Times article? Do you want to jump to uh, some puddle of mud or do you want to, want to do the New York Times? Because that article was about you, right, Max? Uh, well, <laughs> I wasn't even that sold on the why. Why do you say that? Isn't the article just about like uh, people being too soft? Oh, coddled. you said uh, you've been coddled. <laughs> Explain the article, Mike, and we can get we can touch on it briefly. We'll see if it goes anywhere. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So there's this uh, there's this piece uh, in the New York Times uh, that I guess has caused a bit of controversy. There's been some backlash uh, from younger people, from millennials. But this guy, David Brooks, who's an opinion columnist. Uh, headline, the age of coddling is over, learning what hardship has to teach us. And so like through the prism of COVID, uh, he basically sort of posits that young people are having such a hard time dealing with adversity uh, because they've been coddled their whole lives. 
um, and that d- that doesn't prepare them for when actual real shit hits the fan. That's sort of the piece, but then he kind of goes into a more interesting thing where he says the reason that medical professionals are actually so good in these moments is because medical school is so hard and you are basically not coddled. You basically have to be, you have to prove that you can sort of like act under duress uh, in the most stressful situations and still stay cool. He's like, everybody should sort of uh, have to go through that, but he compares it to the great generation in the past and older people. So a lot of people are kind of looking at this thing and saying, okay, but boomer um so that's kind of that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the 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 angle of the piece so uh yeah i mean do you guys agree with the sentiment that uh the younger generation is coddled and that's why they're not they're 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 struggling with with covid uh which seems like a weird thing because i think everybody's fucking struggling with the, the current situation just like we would if there was a fucking world war three it's it's like this is so weird and unprecedented this isn't like this isn't like snowflakes getting hurt you know it's like it's a weird time for him to bring up the we shouldn't have gave out participation trophies argument <laughs> it's like because this is just so fucking extreme but uh yeah what were your guys thoughts on the new york times piece do you want to start uh maxi yeah well i mean i a couple things uh, come to mind one i think there's a few things that can be true at the same time one i think that like Sure. Can we look at the mental fortitude of medical professionals and and doctors and nurses and learn something from them? Can everybody stand to do that? Especially seeing how like they are the bedrock of our communities and are guiding us along right now. Yes, I think that is completely fair and valid. And if we've gotten away from sort of like institutional strictness when it comes to like your line of work and how seriously we need to take it and how we all need to be team players and put our egos aside and put our own sense of celebrity aside. Uh, I think that's great. Um, do I think that like the okay boomer thing is kind of like unnecessary? I, I, yes, I think it's unnecessary. I think that the modern generation has its own problems for sure that they're different problems than the, than the boomers had. Uh, I, I, I also think that the headline probably, and this is the thing that's happening more uh, with social media, is that the headline for the piece is maybe the most offensive thing. If you actually read the body of the piece, I don't think anybody really disagrees with what he's saying, but it got me thinking about just the way ideas are presented and how these online debates happen and the outrage that comes from it uh, is largely to do with what the headline is and who is delivering the message. Um, yeah, and I just I, don't know, I just thought it was an interesting because it was trending, and David Brooks is a guy who's a bit of a lightning rod for people on the left who just go, "This is a conservative guy who's like completely out of touch." Even though I think he often has like some pretty like interesting philosophical insights into like how we build communities. But I read him pretty regularly. But Shane, what did you think? So, wait, are you saying if Obama had written that and the title of it was like some advice for a younger generation, it would have gone over fine? <laughs> no, th- that's exactly no. That's exactly my point. I think if Obama had written the same piece, he would have organized it a little differently, and he would have had a different headline. It, the headline wouldn't have been what, what was the headline again? Um, uh, it, the headline is "The Age of Coddling Is Over." It wouldn't have been that. It would have been what we can learn from our medical heroes. If that's the headline of the piece, and then he and then the rest of the body is exactly the same. I don't think anybody's talking about it. I, th- I, th- I think people go, oh, okay, that, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe he removes a couple of the um, a couple paragraphs about how kids these days are a little too coddled, but it just gets to the heart of it, which is just like med school is intrinsically hard and sometimes harder than it needs to be, but it trains people to work at a very high level amid incredible stress. Like it, those are mm-hmm. good lessons. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. So I, so I, I've just been thinking about like the way arguments are presented right now. Um, so, do you guys watch Bill Maher, by the way? I have. No. Do you like Bill Maher? 
I've watched him in the past on Politically Incorrect, but that's where it ended. <laughs> so he had this uh, piece that was shared by Sam Harris. Uh, it was like a five-minute rant that he did from home. It was like, a, like an at-home version of a show where basically he said the, the sort of culture police warriors are saying we can't call the virus the Chinese virus. He's like, despite the fact that a lot of other viruses are named from the places they started, but right now it's inappropriate to call it the Chinese virus because it's xenophobic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and like his point was sort of interesting in that it's like, if this is a problem that keeps reoccurring when it comes to these diseases spreading and there's a country that maybe isn't doing its part in limiting that, we should be able to hold them responsible in a productive way. I think that that point is fine and a constructive like medically based argument should be made to have that conversation but my problem with mar is that he's such an asshole about it where he's like with all you liberal snowflakes aren't don't see the point if i can't have this conversation you're the problem blah 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 and it and it's just like okay you're such an asshole that it's going to turn off a lot of people's brains when you start talking like that like people are just not going to listen to you so I don't know. I'm just like always interested in like who is the best communicator of ideas to actually get shit done. And I think Mar, despite the fact that I agree with like a lot of the things he said, like a lot of the ideas he has, the tone and the style in which he presents it makes me kind of hate the guy. And actually, I think he makes it he makes the overall problem kind of worse because people just get so pissed off at him and and shut down as a result. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, do you guys have like any anybody in mind who like communicates ideas well, or or communicates ideas badly, but you agree with? Like Sam Harris is maybe a good example. I don't know. The problem is you don't really want to say those people, or else there's a bunch of backlash that comes at you. It's like <laughs> such a conundrum. <laughs> Shane likes Jordan Peterson. I'm setting you up right now. Like, it's like a hard, hard to that would be the headline, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's going to be the title of this episode, by the but way. But yeah. I, I can't help but feel well, like everyone older than me is old and out of touch, and everyone younger than me doesn't work hard enough. So you're in the perfect zone. But I know that's <laughs> not true, but it's like my emotional feelings always like, ah, these millennials. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what do you think, Mike? I mean, I think we're all soft and we're all tough at times. Like, it's like, you know, you know, like my whole thing is it's like, um, there's, I, there's kind of the, I approach things in three, like there's three sort of angles. It's like, it's like, what this group of people think, what or it's like what this side thinks, what the opposing side thinks, and then how I feel after ingesting both of those things. And to Max's point, I think delivery matters. I think, you know, uh, sort of like the way that the message is delivered uh, ends up just sort of like, uh, I think, affecting the outcome a lot more than maybe, maybe even the message. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's like, like, do I think that, like, when I read that piece to Max's point, I'm like, the language is like, okay, I've heard this like so many times, like participation trophies and kids are coddled and all that stuff. And then my, my argument back to that or my thoughts on that are like, well, yeah, because we're trying to like sort of like raise a generation of like, um, of like people that want to, you know, uh, 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 sort of engage in their community that are well adjusted because there was this whole generation of people that whose fathers didn't fucking talk to them and they grew up and they got all, they were all weird and they were damaged and they couldn't share their emotions with their partners and they didn't raise their kids right because they were like, well, my father didn't speak to me or my mother was emotionally, uh, absent, you know? So what happens is all those kids that grew up in those situations are like, no, I'm going to be a different parent. Like, you know, and they're always like, oh, you can't be your, your kid's, uh, friend. You have to be their damn parent. It's like, but there might be a 
middle ground where you don't sort of like ruin your kid by like withholding your emotions. Instead, you sort of like tell them that they are great. And then the idea is that we sort of all as a society grow into this better place where we're all kinder to one another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, I get the argument that like the world is a cruel place and it's not fair and that you might get a shitty boss that does not give a, a crap or you might, you know, uh, you might get a curveball that all of a sudden is very hard to deal with because you've had a really good sort of existence for 23 years and then you're not prepared. Um, whereas if you're somebody that's maybe had a few, you've been, you know, you've had a few losses uh, through your teens and you know what it's like and that the world can be a bit tough. Yeah, maybe it's easier to, to sort of like take uh, bad news or when bad things happen to you as you get into your 20s or your 30s. Uh, I get both sides. So like, so to me, I'm like, yeah, millennials are soft, but they're going to learn, you know? And I don't think it's a bad thing that like they were raised by parents that just wanted to do better. And it's like, do I think that people older than us are tough? It's like, yeah, I do. And I think it's because they probably had a tougher upbringing, which is like in some ways unfortunate, but yeah, probably did prepare them for like a, a cruel world. So it's like, I don't know. I always err on the side of let's try and get to a better place in society um, like, I don't know how you can go wrong doing that instead of just sort of sitting back when things go bad and being like, uh, well, you weren't prepared. I knew things were going to be shitty anyway. You should have, you should have prepared yourself. So that's where I stand. I don't know if that answered Isn't the question. Isn't the idea though that, that boomers had everything handed to them, like jobs you need require a university education. Uh, they were able to get when you didn't need a university education. So it's like boomers kind of got everything handed to them and millennials want everything handed to them. Well, yeah. Isn't that kind of like the stereotype? No, yeah. The, yeah, that's the sort of main angle is that basically like the boomers are sitting on a perch basically saying work harder and you can achieve your dreams. But the millennials know that that's a disingenuous argument, that it's bullshit because it's like actually the world was way different 30 years ago and or 40 years ago when you bought a home basically working, you know, a job that right. paid you, a, you know, a more than a living salary and all that. And the world has changed since then. So it's not an equal playing field. So that, that is a major, major part of the argument for sure. Yet the stereotypical millennial would want uh, or expect maybe something without working as hard. Right. That would be the stereotype. That'd be the stereotype. Yeah. What do you think, Max? Do you think that the do you think the younger gen? What are your thoughts on both sides of the divide, the in the extremes? I don't know. I I, I think there's like advantages and disadvantages that each party's had, right? So it's like sure, like boomers could buy houses, um, and yeah, uh, they were affordable. Like things th like the cost of living seemed to be not so expensive, and the, yeah, it was like a simpler time in that way, um, and. I don't know. I just think like everybody has their things that were hard and everybody has their things that were a little easier, like each generation. So I don't well, we were know. in I, the I, perfect pocket. Don't you agree? Like we were in that sweet spot of we got a little touch of this, a little touch of that. Yeah, there were still some jobs when we were coming you know, of, of age and all that stuff. Like we kind of got in under the last bit where it was like, yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, from from our point of view, it seems it seemed like it worked out where it's like we kind of occupy both spaces. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like we kind of have these career jobs that yeah. might not be so readily available to the people that are coming up under us, which is why we're. I think all of us are trying to be generous with opportunities or advice and stuff like that as much as you can give it. But everything's so circumstantial. Um, but then we kind of like I think we're sort of like enlightened in a way that maybe like the generation ahead of us uh, wasn't so lucky to sort of be. You know, they kind of went. I don't know. Like yeah, I think we're, for me. It's 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 been a good pocket to sort of occupy because I feel like we can see the people that came before and that we can see the people coming behind and there's almost a healthy sort of like feeling like it's kind of weird to remember pre-internet because so many people a lot of our listeners yeah probably don't even remember a time where there wasn't the internet you know what I mean like well you went through all of elementary school without having internet right 
I did. Yeah. yeah, we yeah got, that's like, a, that's com- insane. Yeah. Computers in middle school was when we started doing computers. I didn't get an internet connection until grade seven. So I would assume for you, that would be grade nine, right? Like that's when you had your first dial up connection. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They, yeah, we, <laughs> and we used to have my mom would want to talk on the phone, and then Greg and I would be like, "Mom, we want to use the internet." Be like, and we'd be downloading like a Weezer song on Napster or some shit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But what's the next topic? Unless we want to talk about this more? No, we no, went deep, go. man. We might have to yeah. ditch the listener <laughs> questions tonight. <laughs> uh, well, Maxi, did you want to talk about Pitchfork giving Fiona Apple's new album a perfect ten? Well, I did. Well, I thought it was kind of interesting because they only give out uh, the only other ten they've given out in like the last ten years is Kanye's album uh, "Beautiful Fantasy." I think. Wow, my dark, twisted, whatever. Uh, but I was just more interested in that idea of giving a, a piece of art a perfect score. Um, I also just kind of find it interesting that like it's really just one writer at Pitchfork that goes. I think this is my favorite record of all time. And then like, it's an awesome win for Fiona because, because that one writer that was assigned to her album happens to love it and love Fiona. It's like now it's like the, the, the score for Pitchfork as an entire publication. And that's many, many people that work there. And that, and it's a publication that means a lot in the music world. Uh, you know, it'll forever be a perfect 10, one of the only 10s that's ever existed. But anyway, I was just thinking about like, what are other pieces of art that you would give a perfect 10 to, whether that's a, a movie or a TV show or an album or just, just a piece of art? Because there, there's something interesting about like a flawless album. Uh, Shane, let, let's start with you. Yeah, I already said mine. Oh, Jagged, Jagged Little, Little Pill, baby. <laughs> what's your favorite? But you're a movie guy. Uh, and What's your favorite movie? Like, would you, is there any movies you'd give a 10? I really love bottle rocket i really love rushmore i really love swingers uh i really love jerry Maguire. um trying to think of another uh movie i really love there will be blood like ptl all pt anderson's movies i really like like uh punch drunk love i really like like the, the, these are all like to me they're tens no oh, so, so those are all tens yeah Interesting. and uh boogie nights of course is probably a 10 to a lot of people that might be mm. a perfect 10 movie to uh that might be the one i say boogie nights for, for now are, are all these uh movies that you've like watched lots of times rushmore probably i've watched more than any other film like i i went through a phase where i watched it every night oh wow so yeah i was really really into it what about you what, what about you uh, I can think more specifically like albums. I mean, there's a bunch of Beatles albums that are like kind of 10 across the board. Um, like Rubber Soul and Revolver, I think, stick out. Where there's like not a, actually. Revolver is a 10 for you. Wow. Uh, but there's no you know bad what? songs? Like, is you it know 10? What? Does a 10 mean no bad songs? Yeah, it just means the perfect album to you. Yeah, to me, Rubber Soul, I think, is a 10. Yeah, I think Rubber Soul. Actually, there's one of those like George, like. East Indian songs that I don't love on or with it with or without you on Revolver. Yep. So maybe Revolver is a nine point eight. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I think Rubber, Rubber Soul is a ten. Abbey Road is a ten for sure. Let It Be nine point eight. Um, Sergeant Pepper's is maybe a ten. Help is probably nine six. They're all like nine point five or above basically. Uh, but uh, you know. Um, an album like I mentioned Plaskett earlier, like Joel Plaskett, Truthfully, Truthfully. I just have so many memories listening to that album. Uh, and it happened in a pivotal, pivotal time. Actually, I think, Shane, all those movies you mentioned 
How old were you when, when those movies came out? Were they all like between like 15 and 23 kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, so I think yeah, Rushmore came out at the perfect time. It was when I was all fucking up in school but still had creative aspirations. And so I was like 15 and it was about a 15-year-old. So that oh, was like you right go. on the money. Uh, Mike, do you have any? Any, any perfect 10? Yeah, I, I think the most recent perfect 10 movie i saw where i walked out and i was like that's a that's a perfect movie and then even when i rewatched it in subsequent watchings i was like yep they, my brain wasn't playing tricks on me wasn't like just a theater experience that's that movie's pretty much a, a 10 uh was get out the jordan peele film i thought that was like a 10 mm. easily for me and then a 10 album i can think of like just like when i listened to it like shane was talking about jagged little pill uh the blue album by weezer just like again it's like that you it, it hit me at the right age every song on that record to me is like an amazing song um it brings me so much joy just to listen to that record i think that's like uh that's a 10 for me um yeah so so the, those those are two tens for sure for the for mikey v this feels like it was more of a listener mailbag kind of question you know it really did yeah like, yeah <laughs> maybe we go to the next next one which was which i stole from shane because this this was gonna be the final uh the final topic just because i laughed so hard watching this clip i also love <laughs> this, this is so okay. funny i don't know how also how would it have been a shane surprise without us all seeing the clip would it have just you just would have asked us if we'd seen it i was going to have the clip in my avenue. oh amazing amazing because like how i did for the wwe wrestling thing well, one of the beauties of this, and the clip we're talking about, listeners, is uh, the band Puddle of Mud, I guess a couple years ago, had done like a uh, some sort of radio acoustic performance, and they decided to cover About a Girl by Nirvana. I had never seen this clip. Uh, I guess recently it resurfaced, and everybody's you know, having a good laugh at Puddle of Mud's expense on the internet. Uh, but part of the joy of this isn't just the performance, like the singing, like the audio of it, which is a, its own thing. But his face, like the fucking, like visually watching it as he sort of screeches through this homage to Kurt Cobain. Oh man, it is, it is something. How did you guys come across it? It was, it made the rounds on Twitter. Problem has always been one of those bands that is like socially acceptable just to openly make fun of. Yeah. Um, because they kind of have this kind of like white trash kind of like middle America thing that people like to make fun of, I suppose. Um, and yeah, and I think I'm looking at the, the YouTube right now and I think somebody just re uploaded it. Cause I wonder how long ago they, they, does anyone know the actual performance date? <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, I, I just saw it on Twitter, like a music critic, Stephen Hyden that I follow on Twitter was like, gave it a perfect 10. <laughs> it was the same day the Fiona album came out. But like, do you think while he was doing it, he thought it sounded good. Like, like I'm sure this has happened to you, Max, where maybe you've had a performance that went over like gangbusters and then you've gone back to listen to it. And you're like, this doesn't no, sound no, no. Good. The, the reason why I was so uncomfortable watching it, because I related to what he was going through so much, because what happens is most of the time when you get these like acoustic sessions brought to you, it's like you're doing a day of press. You're in New York City. He's at the Sirius XM studios. So he's probably going to do six of these over the course of the day. You're getting, you're throwing your shit into a cab. You're going from one studio to the next. You're, you're waking up at like 6 a.m. And, and you probably had a show the night before. Or I don't know what this guy's relationship is with alcohol. You could be hungover. And you just like, even on a good day, even if you got like a full night's sleep, performing a song like that, 
where you have to sing really loudly is like hard enough. And if you are if you're operating on you know less than ideal amount of sleep and maybe you're hungover, it's incredibly hard. And as a result, our Kells have started to change the key of the song. So for instance, knocking at the door, which requires like a that's me, like a real vocal performance that would be like you know similar to like a Kurt Cobain screamy kind of thing. Um, it's normally an E minor, the, the recorded version. But when we were doing these like seven a.m. radio interviews where we'd have to play the song, we drop it five keys. So like a whole like, yeah, five keys is significant, which would change the whole tenor of the song, but it'll allow sleepy ass Max a chance to sing it nicely and warmly and kind of quietly. So the complexion of the song would change. So when I was watching him sing it, I'd be like, oh my God, like this guy clearly is going for like the 11 PM rock and roll sold out club version of the song, but he has to perform it at 7 AM hungover as fuck <laughs> with his, with his drummer playing the fucking jam, jam or whatever it's called. I'm like, what a nightmare. And it, it brought me back specifically um, to a session that we did. Uh, well, what I want to ask you guys about this was like, do you, do you, have you guys had to do anything really hungover and like have to perform in front of cameras and lights or a meeting or whatever when, when you weren't at your best? And it reminded me of a thing we did when uh, High Noon came out. And it was a real good lesson for me because um, we were supposed to perform these songs acoustically. I think the whole band was going to be there. And there was like a bunch of camera people and lighting guys that were kind of like making this like moody set for us. And I was like so hungover. And I was like, I was like, am I going to throw up? Am I going to throw up? And then halfway through the song, I was like, guys, sorry, I have to go to the bathroom. I would go down the hall. I throw up in the bathroom. And I am like the odd time I've had to throw up. It's not a quiet one. <laughs> like I'm like, <laughs> and then um, I come back to set. Nobody says anything. We carry on. I'm feeling like mildly better. It's all done. We're in the car back. I'm like, uh, hey, Nick, did anybody uh, hear me uh, in, the, in the bathroom there? And Nick's like, Oh yeah, everybody could hear every single thing you did. <laughs> and there's it's actually on the internet too. It's like it's a black and white thing if you search like Arkell's Vivo on YouTube. I, but if you if you look in my eyes, I'm just like a, a, a dead person. But anyway, it was a lesson for me because I was like, I'm never gonna do that ever again. And from now on, if I have any after if I have to be sharp in the morning, I, I'm pretty good about like calling it calling it early and and, and getting a good night's sleep because I and it also affects your voice if you're out drinking and at a bar talking to people till three in the morning. Um, Mike, do you have do you have any uh, stories like that? No, not that I can recall. Like in the band days, for sure, we had to when we we were like touring like. We we did a couple of those radio hits in the morning, and I wish we were clever enough to figure out the big key drop because I would just try to let it rip acoustically, and it was always very like you're just you know you're just straining your voice, and you're so sort of exposed with an acoustic guitar, you know, you don't have anything to sort of to to to, to cover it up, and it's so early. So a couple of those, uh, which were always like afterward, I'd be like, oh, why did we even do that? That was more embarrassing than you know. I don't think anyone's gonna go out and buy our record after listening to that acoustic performance on Calgary One Hundred whatever. Uh, but I I can't think of anything in particular that like I was like, oh man. But Mike, you you do pitch meetings though, like the odd the odd pitch meeting. You won't be your best self, but you you can kind of perform. Like you're better at being a hungover thinker than most i think yeah i can operate that way shane you can speak to this because uh, you guys work together (laughs) yeah yeah mike can turn it on very very well i'm never worried about him even if he's like very out of sorts 
before the meeting, he's very in sorts or one of the better performers during the meeting. So, yeah, I don't worry about Mike. What about you, Shaney boy? Not, uh, yeah. Oh, geez. I've had some terrible days at work being hungover, but I'm more the type maybe to get drunk and ruin something than actually <laughs> the next day when I'm hungover. So thinking of that, like I probably have a million things to say, but something I can actually say on this podcast would be Mike asked me to perform like I don't think it's a secret. I was a rapper <laughs> in my youth. Uh, so Mike asked me to join him on stage for a New Year's Eve performance at Absinthe, which was our old stopping stomping grounds. And it was kind of a, a song I wasn't that familiar with, so I had to learn lyrics or like augment lyrics that I already had that existed. And I thought it would relax me if I got drunk for the performance. Uh, but then when the performance, when I got on stage and it was my turn to start rapping, I forgot every <laughs> lyric and my mind went completely blank. And I couldn't say anything into the microphone, so I just kind of danced around and then meandered off the stage and just tried to like. <laughs> I had to, uh, and, and once I realized he froze, and then we did like we did like we did like four bars waiting for him to jump in, and then he didn't, and then so I was like we were just standing there just repeating the same four bars. I started rapping the, the fucking theme song to Fresh Prince just to cover just to to fill the time, and then I looked to my right, and then Shane was walking off the stage with the beer in his hand, and he just kind of put the microphone back into the stand and walked yeah. away. Uh, that was uh, that's funny though. That was a that was a good times. So that was like 2011, 2010. Yeah, and it was hard because because it was New Year's Eve, there was so much pressure to drink, and there was nothing that was going to stop me <laughs> from being hammered at like 10 when we had to perform. Like in in hindsight, I wouldn't do that now. I'd be so nervous about the performance. I would just make sure I had mastered it before I got on stage, and then you know release the release valve after the performance and just got hammered. But you know, ignorance, the of, ignorance youth. of youth. Uh, do you want to stop it there, and then we'll uh, yeah. hit the music? Ignorance of and youth, we'll and then the music okay, will kick cool. in. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Worst line ever. All right. 